Today's sermon is entitled, The Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit. Serious topic, we're just going to dive right in. How do you introduce a sermon called The Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit? So we're just going to get to it. First of all, this morning, well, let me pray first. Lord, I pray this morning that you'll be honored, glorified through the preaching, but also through our hearts. Consider respond in our hearts. Wisdom and clarity as I speak. Great folks who are listening. Live stream here in the auditory with us. May you have a heart pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing this morning is a visit from Corporate HQ, Corporate Headquarters. Today, we see is making our way through Mark, that the religious leaders came all the way from Jerusalem to discredit Jesus. Mark, chapter 3, verse 22, is where we're starting this morning. Welcome to look at the screen, but also follow along on your own devices. Mark, chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons. Cast out the demons. So it says that they came down from Jerusalem. Now we can talk about folks who came down from Mr. Walker or from South Bend. Jesse drove down from Mr. Walker this morning because they are considered a city or a larger town that is north of us. Jerusalem was a city that was the center of Jewish life. Most of us understand that. Visitors from Jerusalem were a big deal, especially when some of the leadership, spiritual leadership, came from Jerusalem. It was like a visit from headquarters. Now, here's the part that may or may not have thought of as I read verse 22. It says that these folks came down from Jerusalem. Or I turn them here. Well, Jerusalem is south of Capernaum. So usually when someone comes from the north or comes from the south to the north, we don't say they came down. And so here we have the fact that Jerusalem was over 2,000 feet above the sea level. And Capernaum was about 500 feet below sea level. So they made this journey on foot or in a caravan with camels, whatever it was. And this was a, about a 2,500 foot drop. So it's a big drop geographically. So notice the amount of effort here. Have you ever biked on a road that you usually drove on? And notice the ink signs and ink signs a lot more? Like in your car, the, the, the incline or the decline, it's, it's hardly noticeable. But when you're on the bike, then it's a lot more work to go up that small hill, and it's a lot more thrilling to go down that small hill. This was a trip for these religious leaders coming from Jerusalem, going to Capernaum. It's a trip of 100 miles. They, they would go around Samaria, so that made their trip longer than it actually would have been. Some sort of caravan, 
A 100-mile trip for us is not a big deal today. You can do that on how fast you drive in about an hour and a half, hour and 45, speed limit maybe two hours. But for these folks, going with the caravan on foot or with camels, 100 miles was a trip. Almost inconceivable for us today. But this was not a casual effort to travel from Jerusalem to Capernaum. This is a big deal for them to go this far, for them to try to discredit Jesus. So a visit from corporate headquarters and then the weapon of accusations. This is where things get a little bit dicey. They get a little difficult, a little kind of scary. Mark chapter 3, verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by visible and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. So who is visible? However you want to say it. There's a couple different ways you could say it. We read this name in the Gospels just a few times, but it's not widely used in Scripture. And we can look at the etymologies of the words. This is a compound word in the original. To get some more information, maybe help a little bit. The basic idea is the idea of a demon prince. These religious leaders were calling Jesus like a prince of the demons. And we can draw off of implications of the etymologies and get a little more specific. And another way of saying this is they were calling Jesus Lord of the Dung Flies. There's also a connection to the Old Testament uh, God of Baal there with the etymologies of the words. So Jesus then applies it to a rebellious leader, an operative in Satan's kingdom in the verses that follow. So they are, Jesus applies it in the fact that, hey, they're treating me as if I am a prince of demons. I am a demon leader. We talk about using the right weapon. These religious leaders were trying to use the right, the right weapon for the occasion to discredit Jesus. You are not going to use a pistol when your target is hundreds of yards away. It doesn't work that way. However, if you are attempting an assassination, often you will use a sharp shooter. I remember reading, and I think I've mentioned it to you before, of a special ops guy in the early 1980s was over somewhere in the Middle East, and he was put in a location in a outside of a town up in the hills a little bit. No one knew he was there, and he was supposed to be there for a couple of weeks. And he was his assignment was at the right time to take out a dangerous leader over there. And so each day and evening, he would be watching through his scope, probably a mile or two away, things in the town looking for a good shot for this person. And there was one evening where through his scope, he could see that the guy he was supposed to take out was abusing his wife and children. And he so wanted to take him out then. But he could not because there was not a clear shot. Eventually he was able to take out his target and leave and no one knew where it came from. And he was able to get out safely. 
in essence, that is what the religious leaders are trying to do right now. They're trying to pick the right weapon and the right time to take out Jesus. Throughout history, we've often read of this weapon of accusation. And that was what these religious leaders were using as their weapon to take out Jesus. Their finally home prepared weapon was that of accusation. As you read the history books, there are many times where people who are trying to take out somebody use an accusation and then stir people up against that person through the accusation to take them out. These religious leaders carefully chose that idea of Jesus being a demon prince or that he was doing this casting out of demons by Beelzebub. They thought that would be the most effective way of taking out Jesus. They were hoping that the people around Jesus would take that, they would get upset by it, and then they would try to take out Jesus themselves. I want to give you an Old Testament example of how this works. It's 14 verses, but it gives us a vivid example of what these religious leaders were trying to accomplish. 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. And I'm going to read these first 14 verses. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. He's having a pity party. Throwing a little tantrum. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you should eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said to him, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you not now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So how is she going to accomplish this? So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. 
and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge, an accusation against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. So my friends, in the spiritual warfare that we are in, beware of the weapon of accusation. We have seen this in our day quite a bit. And in fact, we have seen church leaders that hide behind when an accusation is made to them, hide behind their own innocence when in fact, after a while, they found out that they, or people found out that they were not in fact innocent. But there are plenty of times in spiritual warfare where Satan and his kingdom use this weapon of accusation against God's people when in fact they are innocent. I want to bring this to the forefront of your attention. In America, because of our freedoms, this has not been a major concern for us. But today, in this world, across the world, in cultures that are hostile to Christianity, this is being used on a regular basis. Pastors in prison, Christians in prison, Christians being put to death through baseless accusations. They rile up the mob around the Christians and then they put them to death before they imprison them. As we see it happening to Jesus, so we need to understand that it will happen to us. The kingdom of darkness uses well-crafted, baseless accusation, even against the Son of God himself. So a visit from corporate headquarters, the weapon of accusation, and then a kingdom lesson. Mark chapter 3 and verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. I think this is the first time parables is used in Mark. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But if no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So here we have a lesson from a lie, from the lie. As outsiders to this situation, we're reading this after the fact, and we've probably read it multiple times, maybe we've heard it preached on multiple times. 
the accusation these religious leaders make against Jesus seems ridiculous. Seems like it has no power. But in, as they were in the middle of that situation, that accusation had a lot of power, and it was very intimidating, especially for those who were followers of Christ. We've mentioned this several times in the Gospel of Mark. One of the things we're amazed as we watch Jesus in the Gospels is his ability to, in the moment, under pressure, to apply truth perfectly and to be able to cut through the lie, cut through the attack with perfect poise and respond just right. And we as his followers seek to grow so that we can do the same thing proper tone, with proper understanding, with proper clarity and wisdom and skillfulness, we can apply the truth in the midst of a very scary lie. In this situation, we see Jesus confronting their false accusation with a lesson about what is actually true. He says, it makes no sense for Satan to work against himself. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to say that Jesus is doing that. And now their well-crafted accusation has been exposed as senseless. So there's a huge shift in this situation. It went from, whoa, what are we going to do now? To, oh, that was dumb. And it just totally turned the situation on its head. And now the folks who were embarrassed were the religious leaders. But it gets worse for them. Not only are now they exposed as making, saying something stupid and senseless, Jesus takes it further. Jesus points out that he would not be able to cast out Satan or his demons unless he had first overpowered them. This means not only did their accusation, accusation not make sense, but it points out that Jesus had power over Satan. And it established Jesus' ultimate power over all things. So their attempt at discrediting Jesus actually credited him even. Here, this is more than winning an argument. This was a one-two punch, and it knocked out Jesus' opponents. But we need to be careful here. I have seen evangelism programs that focus on types of approaches where they're just trying to knock out people logically to where they have no leg to stand on. And if you present it this way, then you will render the person unable to reasonably respond, and then you think, well, then they must be saved. They're going to respond and be saved because I knocked out all the logic against it. In this case, Jesus was eventually murdered by these religious leaders. He discredited them and pointed to himself as God himself, and yet that didn't cause them to Winning an argument or outwitting someone is not how to grow God's kingdom. This does not mean we shouldn't expose error like Jesus did here. We should expose error, but we need to be careful in our motivations and what we're trusting in to bring spiritual life to people. 
consult. We always need to expose error. But exposing error and pointing out the senselessness of a lie does not does not a method of evangelism. Okay, a visit from headquarters, corporate headquarters, the weapon of accusation, a kingdom lesson, them a serious warning. Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Throughout the centuries, there has been an often expressed fear by people. What if I have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I could never be saved. The standard answer is a good one. So let's just get it out there. If you are worried about whether or not you committed the sin, you have not committed the sin. Those who have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit have become hardened over a period of time. And they're never going to care if they did or not. So let's go deeper now. Jesus didn't say these religious leaders had committed this sin. But he warned them that they were on the verge of it. The root of the issue is someone is face to face with the truth. Here, Jesus himself and the work of the Holy Spirit through him in accomplishing miracles. And they continually reject it over time. And then they blaspheme, or blaspheme is another word for slander, talk bad about the work of the Spirit. They persist in it over time. There's a verb tense there that indicates that this is a progressive thing to keep on doing. So how does this apply today? In my experience, I've met very few people that I've wondered if they were on the way to committing this or who actually have. But there are some. They know the truth. They persistently go against it looking at evil instead, and they're becoming more and more hardened. What is scary here is that Jesus is speaking to religious leaders, people who knew the truth in an amazing way, more than the average person. And his warning went to that. There are people who have been around the truth for the majority of their life, and yet they are becoming more and more hardened against the truth. There are people in churches who have become hardened yet powerful. There are churches where there's a few people who are very powerful, but yet they're very hardened. This is an indication of a dead church, an apostate church. Powerful people but hardened to the truth. There is 
a theme in Scripture that goes along with this that is scary. Hardened but enlightened. Folks who have been enlightened to the truth, but they are hardened and they are turned away anyways. Hebrews 6 fits this theme, in my opinion. Hebrews 6, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 8. Very, very serious warning here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. So be warned. Jesus here in Mark gives a warning. The author by the Holy Spirit of Hebrews gives a warning. And this warning still holds today. There are those who have been given the truth over a period of time. And Hebrews 6 is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to deal with. Did they lose their salvation or... Did they never were they never saved to begin with? I'd rather let the warning stand than get into the theological debate. Then we lose track of the warning that the Holy Spirit gives us. If you have been given truth and you are not properly responding and still being hardened at the same time, and continually so over a period of time, you're dangerous. application this morning. Be aware of the weapons used against you in spiritual warfare. It is helpful for us to understand that there are common weapons that the devil's can use. Number two, have confidence that Jesus has the power over the kingdom of darkness. Don't despair. There's some dark things happening in our world. But know that Jesus has bound the strong. Number three, Be cautious about trying to corner other people with the truth. Number four, is God warning you? Take a few minutes to respond to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is doing His work in our hearts. Be honest. Respond with humility before the Lord.